Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delvo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend... Shitel Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI. Our colleague Julia Joja uh, is away today on a podcast. We talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Siegfried Murashan a member of European Parliament from Romania and Vice President of the European People's Party. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Mr. it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. We uh, hosted you for a, for a, a little informal lunch at the Institute some, some weeks ago. And back then, like today... Um, the uh, event in you know Romania's wider neighborhood uh, around the Black Sea uh, obviously are at the forefront of, of, of people's minds. Uh, you are the the chair of the EU Moldova Parliamentary Association Committee, and you've been very much involved in in trying to bring Moldova closer to the European orbit and and, and help it integrate into. Western political structures. Uh, I wonder if you could give us an update because Moldova, obviously, more than Ukraine now, is at the fault line, and and I don't think Russia has quite given up yet on political influence and trying to sort of project soft power and trying to subvert the pro-Western uh, leadership of the of the country. And and I mean, since our lunch back in May, you've been to Moldova at least once. I wonder, you know, what your most recent thoughts are on where the country is headed. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation and thank you very much for putting this important topic on the agenda of our podcast today. The Republic of Moldova is a European country that is geographically located between the European Union and Ukraine. It is a country in which a pro-European candidate won the last presidential elections two and a half years ago against a pro-Russian, pro-Kremlin incumbent president. So a young female president committed to the rule of law, committed to transatlantic values, committed to reforming and modernizing the country, winning against the uh, incumbent uh, pro-Kremlin, pro-Russian, uh, backwards-oriented president is the type of development that we would all like to see in Belarus, and it proves so difficult, and in so many other places around the world. What happened in the Republic of Moldova was remarkable, and it is relevant beyond the borders of the country. This new president uh, committed to organizing early parliamentary elections to uh, uh, finish once and for all with the untransparent majorities which used to govern the Republic of Moldova in recent years. Um, uh, oligarchs controlling significant parts of the political landscape of the business in the country and also of the media used to operate with fragile majorities, non-transparent politicians moving from one party to another so that they could keep control of the country. The result was that the country did not reform for years, did not make progress in uh, its European integration process. Although the European Union was committed to support, the country was not fulfilling uh, the, the commitments and so support couldn't come. 
So this new president said, look, uh, we need once and for all uh, a transparent uh, parliamentary majority. She committed to organizing early parliamentary elections, respected the promise. Elections took place in July 2021. And the pro-reform, pro-Western, pro-European party won a landslide victory, an absolute majority in the parliament, 63 out of 100 seats in the parliament. And this um, party has started reforming the country. So the country is being up. So there is a government which is transparently being supported by the pro-European party. Um, um, then, of course, uh, the illegal, unprovoked, illegitimate invasion of Russian armed forces into Ukraine started. And in the first weeks of the war, Moldova was the country that received the highest influx of refugees compared to its population, higher than Poland, Slovak Republic, uh, Hungary, Romania, higher than any um, other uh, country in Europe. Mm. People uh, acted in um, accordance to European values, human rights. Every Ukrainian citizen coming to Moldova was offered protection, safety, security, and their immediate needs were covered. Authorities as well uh, acted in a way in which we were convinced at the level of um, uh, transatlantic partners that this is a country really committed to uh, becoming uh, uh, a reliable member of the Western world. We have also understood since, since the beginning of the war how important uh, this country is uh, for the security of Europe, for the security of all of us, including for the security of Ukraine. Simply because the country is geographically located between the European Union and Ukraine, we would all be in a much more difficult situation if in addition to uh, dictator Lukashenko in Belarus, Putin would have a pro-Russian regime governing the Republic of Moldova. Mm, so there is good news. Uh, there is willingness to reform, um, but there is also need for need for help. Of course, the country is a, about three million people, an economy which is ten percent of the economy of a major European city. Take the city of Vienna, the city of Hamburg, the city of Barcelona in in Spain. These cities alone, each of them, produces ten times more than the GDP of the Republic of Moldova. So it's a country with a tiny economy, which means that what is for us, for the United States, for the IMF, for Europe, small amounts of financial support can make a big difference on the ground. The country is working on reducing its dependency on Russia. Two years ago, they were 100% dependent on Russian gas. Now they are interconnected uh, through Romania to the European Union. With European support, they have developed capabilities of purchasing gas on the international markets and from other European countries. Mm, they are committed to reducing their dependency on Russia. People start understanding more and more that, you know, Europe, United States, Great Britain are their friends and Russia is in fact just a, a threat. Last point, of course, um, which means that support for European integration is about two-thirds of the population. Support for NATO membership is much, much smaller because the country has the principle of neutrality written down in its constitution and people are still committed to, uh, to this. It's not up to us to tell them to give up their neutrality. Um, they have this written in their constitution, but they understand that also in the area of security, a closer cooperation with um, NATO member states is something which provides more 
more security to them. Uh, last point, mm, Russian information, Russian disinformation, propaganda, still important, um, particularly because, as in the past, as I was explaining in the beginning, in the past, majorities in parliament were not transparent, were volatile. Whenever the country would become too ambitious in its European integration path, it was relatively easy for for Russia to generate, you know, governmental instability and to bring down a government uh, through parliamentary, uh, ordinary parliamentary procedures. But now we have one party which is pro-Western, which holds an absolute majority. It is united and there is no way to bring down the pro-European government. And uh, this is why the oligarchs, which are under time pressure because the reforms in the country have started, the judiciary, the reform of the judiciary has started, this is why oligarchs in the country, and they are under time pressure because they are being held accountable for what they did in the past. And so this is why the oligarchs in the country, plus uh, the Russian Federation, are trying to undermine the uh, democratically elected government. They cannot do that in parliament, as I explained. They are trying to do it through different uh, so-called protests, uh, organizing people, organizing protests, bringing people to the streets. But they haven't really succeeded for the past years. Uh, numbers of people, even if as documented by international organizations, by civil society, numbers of people coming out uh, and protesting in favor of Russia against the government was very, very small. And we have seen, for example, uh, a significant uh, rally in favor of the European integration of the Republic of Moldova, attended by more than 80,000 people uh, one month ago. I was also there present. It was really inspiring. So we are seeing that not every single citizen in Moldova wants European integration, but the vast majority of people do that. I wonder if we could uh, talk a bit about... Um the domestic politics of all this. I mean, one of the things that we've seen where there has been democratic backsliding uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, the sort of formula for that is power elite or the oligarchs or whatever you want to call them, sort of uh, invoke nationalism as a way to uh, rally support among rural voters versus urban voters. You know, it's kind of not dissimilar from what one finds in the United States uh, these days. I'm wondering if there's any of that dynamic that might be lurking um, in Moldova and whether, again, over the course of time, particularly if the uh, war continues for several years and uh, the burden of the refugees remains, whether the kind of thing we've seen in Hungary, even to a certain degree in uh, Slovakia, even Poland to a certain degree, could also play out in Southern Europe as well. Um, a word on refugees and then, you know, a complete answer on nationalism, which are both very legitimate questions. Refugees. First weeks of the war, uh, between 500,000 and 600,000 people have crossed the border from Ukraine into Moldova. In total, it has been in the subsequent weeks about 1 million people, very much for a country of not more than 3 million people living uh, there. About 100,000 of these people are right now permanently based in the Republic of Moldova. There was a time in May, June last year when up to 15% of children in Moldovan schools were Ukrainian. Now the figure uh, is less, it's about 10%, but still 
that means that education, healthcare needs to uh, needs to adjust. Support at the level of population is significant. Uh, they fear for Ukrainian people. The president of the country, a prime minister, I met two days ago, the speaker of parliament, they say, look, we do have difficulties. But the difficulties which people in Ukraine are facing are much, much bigger. So the fact that the authorities, the government, the president, uh, they use their, their authority to explain to people that, yes, we do have to make sacrifices in the Republic of Moldova, but uh, these are less than and smaller than, you know, the shortcomings and the dangers uh, that people in Ukraine are facing, um, this helps. And this keeps support uh, at the level of population relatively high. Of course, the Republic of Moldova needs uh, financial support to be able to economically and socially cope with this, because energy prices have increased seven times last uh, winter in comparison to two winters before. We do have inflation everywhere, but inflation in the Republic of Moldova was about 30% in August, November last year. It's going down now. It's projected to decrease to below 10%, become single digit by the end of this year. But what I'm trying to say is economically, the situation is not simple. This has social consequences. We need to support to be able to keep, you know, also the support for the pro-Western government. So for the time being, people are committed to helping people of Ukraine, also because they are very close to the war and they see and understand what this means. Now your question on nationalism, which I think is is fundamental. Firstly, uh, the majority of people in the Republic of Moldova do speak Romanian as their mother tongue, as their first language. That means they do have access to information, to mass media, which is objective, which is credible, which is Western, which is, you know, partly in Romanian language, but also the the knowledge of foreign languages, English included in the country, is good. Um, But there is a part of the population which is a minority, which is Russian-speaking. And there, of course, it's much easier for the Russian Federation to uh, disinform, to misuse um, the media uh, tools, the media channels. Uh, Moldovan authorities have restricted, um, I mean, have uh, limited the um, influence of uh, Russian channels, uh, Sputnik, but also others, Russian-speaking channels, which in fact were just disinforming what dangerous were, you know, were restricted in the country. It's a decision that one doesn't make lightly, but it was needed, as those were clearly tools of disinformation propaganda. So what I'm trying to say is, particularly the Russian-speaking parts of the population, the less educated parts of the population, the elderly and living in the rural areas are the vulnerable categories of population. The capital city is, you know, a vibrant European city. People, uh, be in, are people informing themselves through, through various channels, much harder to, to be misinformed. 80,000 people in favor of European integration in the capital city um, of all ages, by the way, um, at this mass rally uh, one month ago. So indeed, mm, Moldova has to overcome the divide between the rural urban, the Russian and Romanian speaking, the uh, um, elderly and the younger parts. The good thing is that it has a significant diaspora, people living abroad, Moldovan citizens, uh, which because they hold a Romanian passport, an EU passport, are working, living, traveling to Europe, are informing themselves, are 
therefore also communicating back home to their parents, to their families. Of course, that does not automatically mean that they change their, their point of view uh, and for sure not uh, of everyone and for sure not in the short term, but in the longer term, it does, it does have an impact. The president of the country has managed to um, win with her party an absolute majority in the parliamentary elections by, although they are mainly a Romanian-speaking party, also addressing the Russian electorate. And this is my important point. So we should not forget and we sh the Russian-speaking people, and we should not by default, you know, uh, blame the Russian-speaking people for the fact that they are victims of disinformation and of propaganda. We should find ways to, to talk to them, to go into the rural areas ahead of the parliamentary elections, the president of the country started addressing them as well in Russian, and the main message was, irrespective of the language that we speak at home, some might speak Romanian, some might speak Russian as their first language, some Ukrainian, some Turkish, some Bulgarian, the dangers are the same. And the uh, former corrupt political class is a threat to all of us, and uh, corruption is making ordinary citizens poor, irrespective of whether they speak Romanian or Russian back home, and this message resonated with a part of the Russian-speaking people, and it enabled the absolute majority for this pro-reform party. So uh, yes, this risk exists. We should address these people as well. We shouldn't uh, forget about them. In addition to the very legitimate urban-rural uh, divide, which you were describing, there is also this uh, linguistic uh, division. You haven't touched on um, the the security dimension of the Moldovan um, situation all that much. Obviously, going back decades, Moldova is 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 dealing with this you know, situation, the self-styled breakaway region of of Transnistria, and the presence of 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 of, of the Russian so-called peacekeepers. Uh, and, and and that has acted as a, as a kind of festering wound on the on the body politic of Moldova, partly because of you know business interests that 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 sort of you know extend from Transnistria into sort of Moldovan politics, and and and, and I think that sort of dynamic that you describe with with sort of oligarchs uh, stepping on the brakes whenever the country got you know too fast uh, in in its in its sort of rapprochement with, 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 with the European Union and and, and and Western political bodies, I think is is, is apt. Uh, that said, there is no easy way of resolving this issue without you know some kind of direct confrontation with with with, with Russia. I mean there are you know these Russian troops there, how do you get rid of them? Or is there is there a way of you know solving the problem that does not involve you know, a sort of military solution to this? Firstly, there is no immediate security threat to the Republic of Moldova deriving from the Russian Federation. Uh, Russia would like to, but they do not have the capabilities. They are losing in Ukraine, they're not winning. And as, as long as Ukrainian troops are keeping the Russians in the south and in the east far away, there is no immediate risk for the Republic of Moldova. In order for the Russian Federation to become an immediate uh, threat to the Republic of Moldova, they would need to uh, 
be able to build a bridge between their troops uh, stationed now in the so-called uh, Transnistrian region of Moldova and what they have in southern and eastern Ukraine, and Russia is not in the position of doing that. Uh, as long as Odessa and Nikolaev are in Russia, are, are not in Russian hand, they are under Ukrainian control, there is no way that Russians can get into Moldova, and we all know, particularly Odessa is a city that is very well protected meanwhile, so um, uh, there is no immediate threat. The immediate risks that exist are disinformation, um, cyber uh, risks, cyber threats. This is why the European Union has now created a special um, civil mission with uh, about 50 experts in the area of cyber security, experts coming from more member states of the European Union, from European institutions that are being deployed to the Republic of Moldova to be able to tackle these hybrid threats much better. Then, of course, uh, Wagner type of um, individuals um, are trying to cross the borders of the country. So far, Moldovan authorities are managing to, um, to, to, to keep them away, but they have to be very, very alert. Likewise, uh, there was a clearly pro-Russian uh, party in the, in the country by a, uh, led by a uh, um, convicted fugitive. Uh, the party was declared uh, unconstitutional last week, but they were trying to also recruit people that were ready to commit acts of violence. So this is why the authorities have to be very, very careful so that, you know, uh, a security threat from inside the country, you know, with the support of Wagner type of, of, of movements does not really uh, evolve. Then, of course, security threats to the Republic of Moldova, Ukraine and, Euro and Europe are in many areas, you know, common risk of smuggling, uh, human trafficking, smuggling drugs from Asian countries, eventually trying to uh, smuggle um, the weapons that exist in Ukraine. So these uh, security threats exist. Uh, they are common to Europe and Moldova. Very often uh, Europe is the final target for these types of smugglings and Moldova is at most a transit country. So this, we, we have understood this recently and this is why we have strengthened cooperation. The European Union has also launched a so-called security hub in Moldova with European expertise, financial support to have Ukrainian, Moldovan, EU authorities and authorities of EU member states better cooperate in better tackling the, the regional um, secu security threats and uh, challenges. Of course, Russia does have troops and ammunition in the so-called Transnistrian region. We do not know exactly what condition that uh, weapons are in. International uh, missions were not allowed to inspect those weapons for about 20 years. We do not know whether they pose a risk or a threat. Um, it is clear that the resolution of this frozen conflict will depend on the situation, on the resolution of the situation in Ukraine. Um, the best that we can, and it's also clear that there is no immediate solution. A good solution is a well-thought and well-prepared solution, but not a quick fix. Um, this is why um, uh, the most important thing right now is that in the Transnistrian region, people do not respond to any types of provocations. And the best uh, thing, the most important thing right now is that there is no provocation in the region. 
And the good thing is that since the start of the war, we have seen the situation being calm, no escalation, no provocation. And that's really the most that we can hope for right now. The truth is that on both sides of the uh, Nistru River, people want to live in peace at the end of the day. Of course, Russians are trying to uh, um, influence you know, people in the so-called Transnistrian region. But uh, so far, the situation is stable, and that's the most important thing in the short term. The rest we will deal with in the longer term. What is very important is that um, Moldova's European integration, which is possible in so many other areas, is not being held back because of the uh, yet unresolved frozen conflict. We can progress in modernizing Moldova in reforming its public administration, its judiciary, in strengthening its economy, in reducing its energy dependency from Russia, even before uh, we uh, solve the transmission conflict. I have a, a bold suggestion that we actually talk about Romania a bit before we uh, before we conclude. Siegfried, there are, it seems to me as a you know amateur and outsider that there does seem to have been renewed energy um, uh, in these, for want of a better term, uh, Western orientation of uh, uh, Romania. Uh, I think particularly on the security front, uh, um, there was a call the other day for uh, the Germans to uh, step up their uh, troop presence uh, in Romania. Uh, there's been progress uh, on F-16 uh, fighter jet sales, um, and even possibly more stunning, uh, it seems to me, and I appreciate your take on this, progress on the EU front. Uh, there's renewed discussion of uh, Schengen zone uh, accession, I guess is the right term. Especially in the light of what's been happening politically, so there have been at least you know three different prime ministers over the, over the course of the past month. So if you could sort of give us a primer in in in, in sort of Romanian politics, that would be really helpful. With pleasure. So look, we have always seen our membership in the European Union as a premise for our prosperity, as the most important pillar of our prosperity, and we have always seen the membership in NATO and the partnership that we do have with the United States as the most important uh, guarantees for our, our security. So we are fully committed, you know, to further integrating our capabilities with those of other NATO member states. We are happy to be hosting um, troops, colleagues, soldiers from several other member states um, of NATO uh, in, in Romania. We are very happy to also have... Uh, some um, defense capabilities um, organized together with our American partners in, in Romania, which we feel make Romania safer and make uh, NATO and the region as a whole um, safer. So, and this honestly uh, is a topic that the main parties in the country would never disagree on. Uh, these fundamentals, and this is why in terms of security, Ever since we joined NATO in 2004, almost 20 years ago, even in the more difficult uh, 
situations, the alliance was in, you know, we were always committed to, uh, to be there, to help, to uh, also uh, play uh, a role internationally and try to uh, resolve conflicts, uh, be it in Iraq, Afghanistan, or in Western Balkan countries, or sometimes also in, in African countries. Mm, so we are there, count on us. Uh, uh, we are investing to further modernize, uh, better equip our troops in that context also, F-16s. And of course, you know, the day will come when we will want to move to the next generation, F-35s, but that is still a bit complicated, a bit expensive for us. But, you know, uh, in terms of investments into F-16s, uh, uh, that's where we clearly are moving. Now, um, politically, the country is being governed by a grand coalition of the two uh, largest uh, parties in the country. Uh, my party, a center-right, liberal party, and um, a, a social democratic center-left party. These parties used to be at odds in the past, particularly because the socialists were not very committed to the fight against corruption in the past. They were challenging the rule of law, and they were sometimes also weakening the independence of the judiciary. For the time being, uh, my party and that socialist party are in government together because there is no alternative to this grand, uh, grand coalition. The uh, mathematically and politically. The good thing about this grand coalition is the stability that it has brought over the course of the last two years. It started almost two years ago. There is parliamentary stability, there is predictability, and particularly in times of war at your border, this form of stability is um, not a small thing. It's important. It has allowed us to help Ukraine to be able to mobilize support for more than 2 million Ukrainian refugees uh, crossing our borders relatively fast. So uh, we do not love the socialists. Uh, I guess they also love us. But uh, the fact that they are inside the tent somehow makes the tent more stable. Had they been outside, had we uh, been governing alone in times of war, there might have been, you know, a higher risk that they challenge our course on supporting Ukraine and so on. Um, so uh, this is where we are. And because the two parties are about equal in size, when we negotiated this government one and a half years ago, the deal was that the president of the center-right uh, liberal party, my party, is prime minister for the first one and a half years. And then one and a half years later, the president of the socialist party takes over. This rotation um, happened about two weeks ago, exactly as planned, which shows that uh, indeed the construction is stable. But of course, what a center-right and the center-left party want in the long term uh, sometimes differs. This means that uh, the country is being governed in a stable way. That's good. But it's harder to um, do fundamental reforms, simply because the center-right and the center-left party might have different visions. But then the good thing is that immediately after COVID, uh, at the European level, we have decided to launch the biggest package of economic support ever in Europe, about 750 750 billion euros for EU member states, out of which about 30 billion euros for, uh, for Romania. And we are putting these amounts from the European level at the disposal of member states for investments, but in exchange for commitments for reforms. So countries absolutely have to reform in order to be able to access uh, those money from the post-COVID uh, recovery fund, money which are available until 2026. 
So uh, although uh, socialists might have a different view on reforms than we have, in order to access uh, these important amounts, we have committed to uh, several fundamental reforms, uh, labor market, uh, pension system reforms, reforms of public administration, further digitizing the economy, reducing energy dependency on Russia, improving energy efficiency, transitioning to green uh, energy. And uh, these are all commitments that we have made. And like it or not, uh, two parties in government have to have to do it. This is a bit where we are. Uh, last point, Schengen, you asked me about it. Very important to us. Um, Romania has been fulfilling all of the technical requirements to join the Schengen area since 2011. Um, but, uh, and the final decision, a political decision needs to be made by all member states of the European Union unanimously to allow us to join. Everyone recognized that we were fulfilling the technical criteria, but there were um, concerns with regards to the stability of the rule of law in our country in those times, as I was explaining before, when socialists were in government. In November of last year, the European Commission, in its yearly monitoring of the judiciary in Romania, they said that uh, Romania has fulfilled all of their commitments towards strengthening the rule of law, improving the independence of the judiciary, and they say the situation in our country is in no ways worse than in other EU member states. And this has played a role in the eyes of other EU member states. It has played a role together with the fact that they saw that since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, under the most difficult conditions, we could secure an external border of the European Union. Uh, we processed all people properly. We knew exactly who crossed when and so on from Ukraine. So we gained credibility because of the way in which we managed an external border. We managed to uh, lift the concerns of several EU member states with regards to the rule of law in Romania, and the European Commission has confirmed again that we are fulfilling all technical requirements. That led us to the point where 26 out of 27 member states in the European Union said we fulfilled the conditions we should join. One single country, Austria, uh, said um, uh, they vetoed this which means that, yes, we are closer to joining the Schengen area, but it has not yet happened because of Austria's veto. Austria is under significant um, migration uh, pressures, uh, which uh, do not come from Romania and uh, have nothing to do with Romania. People coming into Austria are coming via Hungary, via Serbia, and originally from India, Indonesia, Northern Africa, um, like Tunisia, or also other Asian countries like Bangladesh. They came because these countries have liberalized their visa regime, with, because Serbia has uh, liberalized their, their visa regimes with these countries. People were flying into Serbia easily, then crossing Hungary straight into Austria. So yes, Austria has a problem with migration, but the people who are seeking asylum in Austria are not coming from Romania and they were not coming through Romania. We are now um, working with the European Union to uh, make sure that this migratory flow is better, better managed. Although we are not the source of uh, Austria's problems, we are, of course, ready to uh, help overcome it. Uh, and uh, we hope that as uh, the uh, migration issue will be better managed in Austria, the government will um, make reasonable uh, decision to support our accession. So we feel we are close to joining the Schengen area. We feel support is big, but it needs to be unanimous and we are not yet there.
we have to do an episode on Austria one day, on the role that this country has played in Central and Eastern Europe over the past 20 years, uh, you know, from the money laundering to just being, you know, generally unhelpful in, 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 the, in the current situation. And, and, and the fact that, like, you know, they've been able to get away with that in a way, you know, others haven't. You know, the country that managed to convince the world that, that Mozart was Austrian and Hitler was German. Um, but let's, let's leave that for another time. So before we let you go, uh, I want to ask you a wider European question. So, you know, we, we hear a lot about European strategic autonomy, about Europe's ability to address geopolitical challenges on its own. Uh, I mean, at some fundamental level, that might just mean that Europeans need to sort of step up and do more and spend more on defense, spend more on, you know, responding to sort of, you know, real-time geopolitical events. The question is whether, you know, like to what extent the EU itself is an effective platform to do that. You know, you've been involved in negotiations over the EU budget in the past at, at many different junctures that, you know, two things about the European budget that I think American listeners need to know. One, that it's A, relatively small compared to national budgets, and B, that it is framed within a seven-year horizon, which makes it somewhat difficult for for it to actually respond to sort of you know real time developments when the recovery and resilience facility was designed during the time of covid very few people could have thought of you know this war that was that was coming uh in 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 2022 so how do you see um i mean the eu sort of adapting and 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 and, and sort of changing this 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 fundamental toolbox fundamental fiscal toolbox in response to 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 really a sort of world that seems to be you know changing at a very rapid pace and that also requires the EU to respond accordingly. Look, the budget is one of the most important policy tools that you have, right? It's the same at national level, at level of states, at regional, local level. It's the same at EU level. Reality in Europe is that member states are spending most at national level. They are collecting taxes at national level and they are deciding nationally how to spend that. Uh, Just about 1% of uh, Europe's GDP is being spent at EU level, primarily in areas where there is, where it makes sense to spend together. Security and defense was an area where member states have said um, because of their national sovereignty, they make decisions nationally. Uh, But meanwhile, they see that it makes sense to pull their efforts together at European level, particularly when it comes to purchases of equipment, investments in uh, um, military industry, in uh, research, innovation in this area. It makes sense to pull your efforts together at European level uh, spend once, invest once, and have the cheapest access to the most modern equipment. Uh, the armies of EU member states together use so many more types of weapons than the US army does. This makes them inefficient. Mm. So although NATO is primary military alliance in Europe, at EU level, we can do more in defense, in acquisition uh, of uh, of ammunition and so on, and we are we are doing this. Uh, you've asked me about the EU budget and how does it cope with this. Look, um, yes, the EU budget is planned for a seven-year period, and uh, it uses to be planned in a way in which it is sufficient for Europe's day-to-day expenditures, for 
supporting farmers, supporting uh, students going on a scholarship in another European country, supporting excellence programs in the area of research innovation, but it has proven to be insufficient to cope uh, for for coping to cope with unexpected developments like COVID or like the war in Ukraine. So we are right now negotiating a so-called revision of this seven-year multi-annual financial framework. We understood we have to react. We are revising this, making the appropriations more flexible, um, allowing money to be used where it is needed, simpler uh, rules, less rules, so more flexibility, and also, at the end of the day, a moderate increase of the budget as a whole, including to be able to support Ukraine. So we are about to decide to allocate 50 billion euros additionally to Ukraine for the next four years, so about 12 billion euros per year, in addition to everything that we have committed uh, so far, so for the next four years, we are about to decide now to allocate 50 billion euros more to Ukraine in the context of this revision of Europe's budget. And I think this is good. I believe that supporting Ukraine needs to remain an international effort. Uh, but I believe that also due to geographical proximity with the European Union, um, should not find ourselves in a situation in which other parts of the world are doing more for Ukraine than we are. And for the time being, what Europe is doing overall, receiving 8 million refugees, which was a huge effort, significant costs, including in local communities, 11 waves of sanctions against Russia, the military support, which was low in the beginning, but it's much quicker now, the financial support, I believe it adds up to a significant amount and we are committed to doing that for the long term, for as much as it is needed and be very open, transparent about it and uh, plan it uh, long in advance so that everyone knows that we are committed and so that um, Ukraine knows as well that we are committed. We also know we have to reduce our dependency on countries that we cannot trust. It was a political mistake to uh, be uh, so dependent on Russian fossil fuels. Uh, we are reducing our dependency there. We have reduced by more than 80% our dependency on Russian gas within less than two years. Uh, we should also uh, learn and be sure that never again in the future we become dependent on one uh, country of origin, route of transport or source of energy in the, in the future. This is why also when it comes to our policy on China, we do not need to economically decouple from China. This might be difficult, but we need to de-risk. And that is our priority, to reduce the risks for ourselves. And this is what we understand when we talk about strategic autonomy, reduce the risks um, that would derive from China, which, you know, though an economic partner is a country led by a regime which believes in something fundamentally different than what we believe in. Thank you, Siegfried Murshan, for, for taking the time to, to speak to us. From Dalboro Haj and Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word, 
And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. It helps others find the show. Thank you, and goodbye.